Uh, I love that you guys have all come today. It's a really full day because you knew we were talking about money and wealth. That's, that's got to be the reason that it pulled you out. I've actually heard one preacher talk about how he knew that when he did a series on big questions that nobody would show up for the one if it, they knew in advance it was going to be on money. Um, but actually, we're starting a series now and over the next few weeks on poverty and wealth and God. And it's the idea of this. What does the Bible, the God of the Bible, say about wealth and about poverty, about power and weakness, about riches and about struggling financially? Our aim is this. It's to go through the Bible. We're not going to cover every single verse, but we're going to look at Genesis today. We're going to look at some of the law next week, and then we'll look at uh, Job and the, the wisdom words after that. Then we'll go into the prophets and then the gospels and finish off with the letters of Paul. And it's to get a, a kind of piece uh, in each place of what God has to say about these things. My hope is that we'll see the good, the bad, and our calling. The goal is not to give you financial advice. The aim is not how to draw up a budget. There are people who can guide you in that. Instead, we're going to look at what the scriptures say, God's heart for our wealth, God's heart for us and our prosperity, and God's heart for the poor and his vision of justice for all people. My hope is, actually, over the next several weeks, you guys would commit with me to engaging this topic more broadly yourself. I can pass on some books to read, some articles, and just think about it yourself. Have conversations. If you're married, have them with your spouse, in your small group, with a friend, to think through our relationship with money, to reorient personally underneath the lordship of God. Why are we going to do this? Well, as one author noted, the Bible talks twice as much about money than about faith and prayer combined. Jesus spoke more on money than on heaven and hell combined. The other reason is because we probably need to reorient, right? We are the wealthiest culture ever in the history of humanity, and we are radical individualists. Besides money, is there a topic about which, around which we are more guarded and private and honestly self-serving most of the time? I don't want anyone to know what I'm doing with my money. You have no say. Do not ask me questions. Is it possible that some of us, at least some of us, have an unhealthy relationship to our money and our possessions? Either too much fear, too much indifference, too much selfishness. I think we should probably, all of us, every one of us, expect that what God says about money and wealth may not align with our current approach. Now, maybe you've got it all nailed. But as we go through God's word, I think it will speak to us. Randy Alcorn wrote a book about this a number of years back where he said there is a powerful relationship, according to what he reads in scripture, a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. In other words, we should think about it. So that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. Today, the goal is to start at the beginning, as any good theology should start in Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and God the Creator, 
how he made all things and gives us these gifts of, at least with Adam and Eve, the garden, and kind of gives us a mandate, a calling, and how we're supposed to live out in the garden that he has given us, the gifts that he has given us, and the way that he wants to give us his blessings, but also how he ultimately is the creator and maker. But we're gonna also kind of jump out of this series a little bit um, because we can't go through Genesis 1 without hitting on being made in God's image. And this weekend in particular, from Friday and Saturday and tomorrow, what's going on in the national news, from issues of the unborn to race, to minorities, to women, to the disenfranchised, we're gonna look a little bit at human dignity. That's not directly related to money, although it does have to do with power and weakness. And so towards the end, I'm gonna invite Joel Dillon, who worships here at CCV, but is also the president of Jill's house, to come up and share a little, bit, a little bit about who they are, what they do, and how that gives us insight into human dignity and what God has to say about it. So I'm gonna pray for us, because we're entering into a topic that we don't wanna hear about. I don't wanna preach on, but I think we need to. So let's pray. God, when it comes to our stuff, our wealth, our money, our income, our possessions, all of us have fear and selfishness. All of us fight you for lordship over this place in our life. So help us to have honesty and clarity. Speak to us, encourage us, guide us and help us to have hearts like you, to see in the things you have given us your hand and your mercy and to respond in worship and praise. Transform us to be your people in this world. Amen. So we begin in the beginning. Verse one of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is not an accidental start to the start of the Bible. It is meant to tell us that the beginning and center of all things is God the creator. Anytime you're thinking about anything, we start with God the creator. Before we were God, before there was God, God was and is and will be, and we're constantly needing to ask the question, what is my life built on? Who has a say in my life? And the answer of the Bible is always the God who created all things. As uh, we just had read in Genesis 1, God then creates all things according to his volition and will, and he follows this pattern. As you read through Genesis 1, it's a repeated pattern of God said, it was so, and it was good. Out of the volition of his heart, out of the overflow of his desire, God creates. Let there be, and there was light, and it was good. Let there be, and there was creatures, and it was good. And this is telling us again and again, God is the source and the definer of all things. He's the one who says this is what is. Then he declares it's good. So you want to know what life is about? You go to the source the one who has the authority, who declares what it's about. He is the source and the definer. And ultimately, you read through Genesis 1, and it's very clear that we're supposed to take away this. All of it, all of it, all of it is his. 
It's all God's. And it is all inherently, from the beginning, good. It was and is good. The fact that he says this again and again, it was good, it is good, tells us that all elements of creation have value and purpose. And we have to take something like this, the material world, when we're talking about wealth, we're talking about the material world, the physical world, gold or cattle or land or buildings. The material world was created and it was not inherently evil or unspiritual. It was, as God said, good. It all had value and an intended purpose. So Christianity, building off of Judaism, is not dualistic. It doesn't say the spiritual is good, but the material is bad. It says God created both the seen and unseen world, and it all has intention in his hands as something that is good. Yes, it is fallen and broken, and we should see and understand that we're going to see fallen brokenness. Cancer is not a good. The person with cancer is. God then gets to the culmination of his creation when he creates humanity. And that's the really the big point of Genesis 1 and 2 besides God. It's that he creates humanity. He gets to the end of his creation and says, okay, here's where I really want to act. Here's where I am coming to speak into this world, to reveal myself, to share my love. And he creates humanity, men and women, as the pinnacle of all of creation. Brought into this world to have a special relationship with him. All creation is his, but you and I can have relationship with God in an absolutely amazing and unique way. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 lays it out in those beautiful words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This tells us that all people, all people have significance. All people have inherent worth. Now, this is not, this idea of being made in the image is not how we look like God, necessarily. In other words, it's not those aspects or attributes that we live out. I, we, humans have reason, God has reason. Or you can be good as God is good. Or you can be creative as God is creative. Those are things that we do and are called to do in order to reflect and enjoy the fullness of being made in the image of God. But being made in the image of God does not mean you have to do anything. That's our calling and purpose. But it's not what being made in the image of God means. Being made in the image of God very simply means this. All human life, all human life, has divine, spiritual, and eternal significance. Why, according to the Bible, is murder wrong? Here's why. Genesis 9, 6. For God made man in his own image. It's not murder is wrong because humans have greater cognitive abilities than animals. 
It's not murder is wrong because humans have feelings that a worm doesn't. It's not that we build stuff or can do good. It's actually nothing to do with what we can or can't do and everything to do with God's special calling and relationship on us. Every person, every person, because of their connection to God, God has concern for. Because every person, every single person was made in his image. That means every person matters immensely and every person matters equally. Regardless of race or ethnicity or gender or social caste, regardless of, in our culture, this is the one we need to hear, aptitude, ability, accomplishments, every person from the womb to the natural death has dignity because they are made in the image of God. That is incredibly humbling for those of us who are amazing. Because everyone has equal dignity. But that is incredibly powerful and uplifting to those who feel beaten down by everyone around them, pushed away from the center, struggling in life. Martin Luther King said it so famously, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard. Amen. Yes, all people are sinful and fallen. We fall short of fully reflecting and fully enjoying what God offers us in his relationship and by imprinting us with his image. We all fall short of looking like God as we are called to and as we're called to enjoy life to the full. But every person is made in his image. The aim of God for us in this life is to enjoy the fullness of being created in his image. We do that in relationship to God and in dependence upon God. Living under his lordship, fulfilling his calling on our life, not our own. How do we fulfill his calling in our life? We have to understand some of his calling in our life, which is what we'll do over the next few weeks. But in Genesis 1 and 2, he gives us the creation mandate. That's what theologians call it. It's what humanity is called to do. It doesn't make you human, but it is part of fulfilling your calling as a human being. The creation mandate says these things. I'm just going to read them, and then we'll go back to them. Genesis 1, 28 and 29, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. That's part of our calling. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all the creatures. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, you may have them as food. All of creation, you may have as food, something for you to enjoy. He goes on in Genesis 2 in the repeat of the creation narrative that is focused more on the gift of humanity. It says in verse 8 of chapter 2, And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eye and good for food. Beauty and joy and taste God gave us. Then in verse 15 to 17 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, part of our calling. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of none of the trees in the garden. Every tree in the garden. I give you everything. I want you to enjoy this creation. But there's limits. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. I want you to enjoy life to the full within my limits. Hear what God calls us to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Have dominion. Work and keep it. Enjoy everything within the limits of what I call you to under my lordship. Two things I'm going to point out here that we see from these uh, initial narratives is that we are called to be stewards of God's creation and the gifts that God has given us. We are called to bring order, to co-create, to make the garden more fruitful. Adam and Eve, and I've talked about this before, their original calling was to take the garden, like tend the garden, and a garden is, is a wilderness or a jungle turned into something more beautiful and more fruitful. And in a sense, they were supposed to take the garden based on tend the garden and fill the earth. They were supposed to take the garden and keep moving it outward so that the wasteland outside of the garden was now garden until the whole earth was filled with humanity and the whole earth was a fruitful and beautiful garden that they could enjoy. That was their calling, to increase the prosperity and flourishing and enjoyment of all humanity over the face of the earth. They were called to be vice regents. God is the regent, the king. We are vice regents who operate on his behalf in his land and in his territory. We are, in the ancient world, ambassadors given a task to represent the king in another land. Or something that even Jesus talks about as stewards, it's like a king who appoints a manager for his faraway estate. And maybe he goes to that estate and initially spends a lot of time there, and then he says, hey, I like you. I'm gonna let you live in this mansion with all of this stuff, all of these foods, all of the, take care of it. You can enjoy it. I want you to enjoy it. And then he goes away but it's still the kings. Our problem is we're in this mansion for a little bit and we're like, hey, guess it's mine. And he says, you're my steward. I give you this to care for, to enjoy, but it's mine. God's original intention was for flourishing for them to flourish, to experience shalom and well-being and harmony and prosperity. Dr. Spock, you know, he said, live long and prosper, something like that, right? That's actually because he was Jewish and was using an opening phrase for shalom. That, that right there is the schwa, the shalom. And he's saying live long and prosper, which was essentially a, a euphemism or a phrase for Shalom, 
flourishing, prosperity, wellness, wholeness in every possible way. God's intention before the fall was that we would enjoy the garden, enjoy the fruit, the beauty, relationships with each other, enjoy the wealth of creation, even its pleasures and comforts. But the goal was this, that everyone everywhere would flourish. This does tell us that prosperity and wealth and flourishing is not inherently bad. It is a gift from the creator. We see this in what one theologian called the promise trio found in Genesis. When God blesses Abraham and gives him this promise that you, I will bless you, Abraham, and you will have offspring, and I will give you a land. Each of those terms, one blessing is God's presence with you, will result in offspring, more people, and land, which was the ancient way of understanding wealth and prosperity. And Abraham experienced that. God's presence with him brought forth, eventually, offspring, but he increased in wealth. I don't think there's a direct one-to-one connection based on how the New Testament interprets that later. But what it does tell us is this. In, in Genesis, prosperity and wealth are portrayed as a good thing from God. It is not inherently evil. But from Genesis 1, it is very clear. All prosperity and wealth, as with all things, are his. All things belong to God. David realized this. In 1 Chronicles 29, which we had read, it's towards the end of David's life. And David wants to build a temple for the Lord. Um, The Lord says it's going to be Solomon who builds the temple, but David takes up a collection, a collection to to put all the stuff inside the temple. It's going to cost a ton of money. So David goes on a capital campaign to build a massive church building for the Lord. And David gives of his own wealth, and then all the people come in and they bring all of their wealth, gold and and, uh, silver and all the precious metals, and they just pour their wealth into this, pile it up so it can be built into the temple. And David prays this prayer that we had read out of 1 Chronicles. And the prayer, I'm just going to read parts of it, go like this. Verse 11 and 12, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Okay, God, you got everything. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Jumping down to verse 14, for all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building your house, for building you a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. Now think about this for just a moment. David is the richest, most powerful man in the entire nation. He is Bill Gates, he is Bezos, he is Oprah. David is the richest, most powerful man in the nation. And think about how he got there. He started off as a shepherd 
the youngest brother, which meant he had the the smallest inheritance, the youngest brother in a no-name tribe near Bethlehem. Eventually, he gets into the army, and he wins a lot of battles. He fights. He puts his life on the line again and again. He works incredibly hard, and eventually, he's seen as as a general and then seen as a king. Through wisdom and tact, through his musical ability, through his military ability, through the way that men wanted to follow him, he became king. And as king, he spread the wealth of Israel and became incredibly wealthy himself. It was his skill, his wisdom, his hard work that caused him to to reach success, to achieve these great things, to become what he was. And according to verse 2 and 3 of 1 Chronicles 29, he even says, all of this I'm giving. He actually sets the example. He gives 5,000 talents of of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. He gives almost as much as the entire nation combined. He lays it all before the Lord. All of my wealth, just about, I give for this temple. And yet David doesn't say it's mine. But he had earned it. Instead, what does he say? All things come from you, O Lord. All this abundance that we have provided comes from your hand and is all your own. And this is where we get hung up. It's where I get hung up. Maybe you don't. We can't get over thinking it, whatever it is, is ours. We live in a merit-based, performance-oriented culture. If you have abilities, if you have brains, hard work, you put them together, you will be successful. And if you're successful, you'll be wealthy. And so we assume, we just assume it's underneath that we have earned wealth on our own. Our hard work, our discipline, our wise investments, our frugality, whatever it is, but we think it's ours. A way to kind of figure out if, if this plays in at all for you, and maybe this doesn't come into your mind, but how do you think of family members, like extended family, who are financially a mess? What do you think about them? They made bad choices? Gosh, that was a dumb purchase. Why didn't they just... How do you think about people who are on welfare? If they just went out and got a job, I mean. Our attitudes towards people who are struggling financially, for whatever reason, reveals some of the nature of our heart in relation to who is actually the owner of all things. And here's a question. You worked hard, you're pretty smart, you're pretty talented, you've kept a job, you've invested wisely, whatever it is. Even you just kind of stay afloat, right? And other people don't. How much of your life are you really in control of? Do you think that your current net worth would be any different if you were born 200 years ago? Or in the slums of Mumbai? Or if you were born with Down syndrome, how much of that did you have a say on? When and where you were born? Whether your parents were wiped out because of a war, 
or you were struck with cancer when you were six. Do you have any say on any of that? Was it really just a little luck that you needed? Like, it was basically your work, but you know, God was there with you. It was basically all of your stuff, but God gave you some wisdom here and there. Or is every breath we take a gift from God? Verse 16 sums up what we're talking about. All this abundance that we have comes from your hand and is all your own. I want this to be a a sort of verse that we're thinking about. What does this verse or ones like it mean about your paycheck, your possessions, your purchases, and mine? Is it obvious to others that your money and your stuff belong to God? If you have kids, is it even obvious to them, to your own family? that everything you have belongs to God. We're gonna spend the next few weeks marinating in these very fun questions and their implications for our life. And I honestly think it will be incredibly transformative and freeing to the extent that you let God's word and God's spirit speak to your heart and draw you to him. I'm gonna transition us now, hard drop. We talked a little bit about human dignity and I'm gonna invite Joel Dillon to come up. And as he's coming up, let me just kind of set it up here is we live in the age of human rights um, and this is a great gift. We live in an age when there is more freedoms and protections for all people. In 1948, the uh, UN, coming out of World War II gave us the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And when they did so, they set out that we were protecting all people. One of the weaknesses is that they could not figure out why. They could not agree as a collective, all the nations, on why we should protect all people. The result is that even though that idea of universal human rights, philosophers will tell you, and historical philosophers will tell you, is drawn from Jewish and Christian roots, ultimately, they the way that it has been built out in our culture today and in the West is devoid of God. And this means that even the human rights that we currently enjoy and are so great are very tenuous. Without a clear foundation of why, without God underneath it, dignity and rights are just about whether the majority agrees with it. And this means that those at the fringes are the most vulnerable. And it basically kind of comes to the question of, is a life worth living? Is a life worth protecting? And right now, we sort of have that for many, but there are still people on the fringes. And I I invited Joel to share, uh, because he is the president of Jill's house. He's been at this church, he and his family, for a couple of years since you moved down here. Uh, Joel, tell us about Jill's house, what it is, what they do, just to kind of set us up. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, hello? Yep, there There we go. go. Uh, Yeah, so Jill's house, we are right here in Vienna, located right here in Vienna, and we serve families who are raising children with profound intellectual disabilities, and you'll get to meet one of those families via video here in just a minute. Uh, We serve these families primarily in two ways. Uh, The first is the provision of short-term overnight respite. So what that looks like, families send their kids to us for 24 to 48 hour stays several times throughout the year. We love on those kids, give them a great experience while they're with us, and meanwhile, the parents get a break. 
And for the parents we serve, it's the only break they get. Uh, they're not like me. They can't just call up a babysitter, call up grandma and grandpa to come stay with the kids for the weekend. Uh, this is their opportunity to sleep through the night, to give their other kids undivided attention, to go on a date for the first time in years. So things that most of us take for granted are precious for these parents. So we provide that respite. And then we also um, have a lot of holistic support services on top of that. So one of the most important things to know about the families that we serve is is it is largely an unreached people group. So over 90% of the families that we serve at Jill's house are non-Christian. Uh, they probably wouldn't set foot in a church, uh, but they'll come to Jill's house and uh, they'll let us love and serve them. And uh, we try to live out the gospel and word and deed with those families. So I think um, if we've got it set, uh, we got a little video to introduce uh, everybody to one of those families. Wow. Joel, kind of you've had the chance to work with people like Nick and their families. How does working with people with severe cognitive disabilities align with the biblical view of human dignity? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not obvious to everyone if you haven't had that kind of day-to-day -day contact with people with disabilities. But, um, you know, if we believe that Nick is created in the image of God, just like you and me, and I believe that firmly— um, that means he's been given gifts too. Um, it means he's been given gifts that need to edify the body of, for, to edify the body of Christ and to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, but it's a little bit harder to see with Nick. Uh, he's not going to have a job. Uh, he's not going to achieve um, much in terms of worldly success. Um, he's not. He doesn't talk. He's not going to walk. He's not going to get married. He's not going to uh, fill the earth. Uh, he's not going to do a lot of the things you talked about in Genesis. You know, a lot of us find our worth. I find a lot of my worth in providing for my family. Um, he's not going to be able to do that. Um, some people find their worth in giving their wealth away, which is a great thing to do, uh, but he's not going to be able to do that. So all these things that we kind of take for granted as, um, you know, things that you should be able to do to honor and serve God, Nick is not going to be able to do. Um, but we believe firmly that he's created in the image of God, that God uh, gave Nick to Lee and to Jill's house and to the body of Christ as a blessing. Um, and so uh, we need to change our vision, change our focus a little bit to see those gifts. Um, but, Johnny, you said it so well this morning. Um, the image of God has nothing to do with aptitude or attributes. It has everything to do with how God created us, his special connection to us, and that he wants us ultimately, Nick included, to reflect him. And I guess that's, um, you know, that's a huge part of even a way that the disabled like this can speak to us is because we have such warped views of where our value and worth come from. And we assume that if I if I am doing something, that's where it is, or if I'm accomplishing something, that's where it is. We look for it in popularity. We look for it in the bottom line. We look for it in getting into a college. We look for it in likes on social media, things that Nick is not going to be able to achieve. But the value and worth of a human is found inherently in God creating them, and resting in that as as humans, as people, can give us such great foundations that have nothing to do with what you're doing or not doing on a given day, and can actually really transform how we approach our own lives. Um, last question for you is, what do you feel like is the church's calling with regards to the disabled, just kind of the big C church, um, Christians in general? Yeah, I don't think it's any different from our calling generally to anyone. These are people created in the image of God. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, by and large, they're outside the church. Um, and that's not because uh, pastors wake up every morning thinking, how can we make church unwelcoming for families raising kids with disabilities? But uh, the church, Big C Church, has by and large done a pretty poor job of making uh, congregations welcoming for families. So I think we need to think really intentionally and proactively and then go out and let these families know that we want them here, um, that we 
want people with disabilities here, that they'll be loved here, welcomed here, that they'll be valued here, and that they'll be able, just like all of us, uh, we want the church to nourish us spiritually, and we want it to be a place where we can use the gifts that God's given us. Uh, and we want that for Nick um, just as much as we want it for, for you and me, Johnny. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. If you want to hear more about uh, Jill's house and the work that they do, uh, Joel will be around here afterwards, and he's here most Sundays as well, and glad to be able to talk to you about it and give you some more insight into what they do and ways that you can support them in prayer, financially, or just in your participation. Um, I'm going to pass our time over to Liz Ha, who's going to lead us in prayer. So as we walk off, let's prepare our hearts to go to the Lord in prayer.